take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 6. We are studying through the book of Hebrews in consecutive expository preaching, and we come today to the next passage that we have before us. It is Hebrews chapter 6. I will preach verses 1 through 8. And you see in the bulletin there, I titled the sermon, Apostasy, Don't Fall Away from Jesus. Hebrews chapter 6, follow with me as I read. This is the word of the living God. This is the truth of God, as if God were right here in this pulpit, speaking directly to you with his own mouth. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance." since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is tilled receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. Father, we come to your word for the reading and preaching of it. And we pray that you would be the divine preacher this afternoon, that I would be the human spokesman standing behind the pulpit, but that I would fade behind the divine preacher, for we want to hear from You, Holy Spirit, may these not be my words, but may they faithfully be the words from an accurate handling of your word, so that believers would examine their own hearts, and that we would cling to the Lord Jesus, that we would hold fast. To him because he holds fast to us. May there not be any among us that would ever fall away from the faith. We pray for the children, for every single one of them here in this church sit under the Word of God weekly. We pray that as they grow older, and their head is filled with knowledge of Jesus, that they would not turn away from him and reject him. We thank you, O Lord, for the love that you have for us in giving us a warning passage like this. So speak, Lord, for we as your servants are listening. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. Apostasy is a very terrible path. Is it really true that many of Christ's supposed disciples may at some time or another fall away from the faith? Is it really true that many of Christ's professing disciples may at some time or another finally and totally reject him? If this is the case, then let me exhort you 
and let me persuade you and let me implore you to lay your hands by faith on a slain redeemer, to be firm in your trust in him, to be steadfast in clinging to him by faith. Those are the words by Ebenezer Erkstein, he was a Puritan minister, as he began his sermon on the evils of apostasy 400 years ago. A warning, it's the peril, the danger of apostasy. And yet the reality of it, and the reality that there are many who will hear about Jesus, but will reject him. And fall away from him. I want to define my term. I'm going to talk this afternoon about apostasy. I'm going to preach on the topic of apostasy. What does that mean? Apostasy is the falling away from the Christian faith. It is the willful abandoning of Christ and his gospel. This is not someone who sins. It's not someone who falls into a pattern of sin. This is not someone who has never heard. No, no, no. Apostasy is someone who has professed the name of Jesus, but then at some point they turn and they reject Christ willfully and deliberately. Imagine with me if you're driving down a highway. You're driving down a highway and you see these big orange signs in front of you. And they're warning signs. The big orange sign says road closure ahead. It's a simple sign. We've all seen it before. Road closure. And then it says all vehicles must exit. The road ends ahead. You must exit. And you're driving down the highway and you're going along with traffic and and all of those who are ahead of you are heeding the warning because they're exiting the highway and they're following the warnings and they're following the instructions But could you imagine the peril? Could you imagine the danger if at the last moment you ignore the warning and you think, oh, that's foolish. I'm just going to keep driving down the fast lane, even though it says road closed ahead. And little do you realize you would fall to your own doom because the road ends. Why why a warning? Why that big orange sign in the middle of the highway? Well, the warning sign is there to caution you. It's there to protect you. It's it's there to guide you so that you are led to safety. The warning sign is there for you to take proper action so that you heed it, so that you respond to it, so that you take proper precaution. That's what our text does this afternoon. It's a big orange sign in your Christian life. It is a warning, and that's what Hebrews 5 and 6 is. It is a warning passage from God to us. Remember last week, we looked at chapter 5, verses 11 to 14, which is a sobering diagnosis. It's as if the author of Hebrews is preaching his sermon to the congregation, and he moves to the side of the pulpit, and he says to the congregation, you know, you're, you're really quite dull. You've become dull. You ought to be more mature than you are. You ought to be teachers. You ought to be discipling. But, but I get the sense that you've become quite lazy in your Christian life. You're, you're like a high-maintenance toddler Christian, he says about them. It's a diagnosis. Today, in verses 1 to 8, we come to the warning. Because the warning is, don't let that persist. Don't let the diagnosis of spiritual dullness remain in your heart and in your life. Heed the warning. Listen to the warning. Take action to the warning of God. We're going to see the warning today in verses 1 to 8, and then I promise you, next week in verses 9 all the way to verse 20, probably two weeks we'll look at that, there are loads of comfort. So today is a tough one. I'm telling you up front, it's a tough passage to swallow. But God is going to overload us with comfort in the next couple of weeks. 
A lot of promises, a lot of hope in the character of God to come. But he gives us a severe warning today in verses 1 to 8. And all of this reminds me of the book of Jeremiah. When we talk about apostasy, we talk about willfully turning away from God. I'm reminded of Jeremiah chapter 7. Because in Jeremiah chapter 7, God says in that chapter that he spoke to the people of Israel. I love how God says it. I was daily rising early and I was speaking to you, meaning through the prophets. I would get them up early in the morning and I would send the prophets out and they would preach my message to the people of God, rising early in the morning to exhort my people. But they didn't hear. God called out to them, But Jeremiah 7, verse 13 says, But you did not hear. I called to you, but you did not answer. And then in verse 19 of Jeremiah 7, Do they spite me, declares the Lord? Is it not themselves they spite to their own shame? They are provoking God to anger. God tells him in verse 20 that this place, Jerusalem, and the temple is going to burn, and it's not going to be quenched. God says to them that you're not obeying me. You're walking in your own counsel. You're walking in your stubborn hearts. You're going backward. Verse 24 says you're not even going forward. You're hearing the word of God, but you're deliberately rejecting the Lord. At the end of verse 34, God tells them, the whole land will be a ruin. And what's sobering to me about Jeremiah chapter 7 is that is Israel in that generation apostatizing. Many of them went to the temple. Many of them proclaimed the name of God. Many of them proclaimed to be God's people, but they willfully turned away and they rejected God pursuing their own sin until 2 Chronicles 36, 16 says, God's wrath arose until there was no remedy. What a sad scripture. Listen to Proverbs 29, verse 1. A man who hardens his neck after much reproof will suddenly be broken beyond remedy. So hear this. Is it true that there are some people who hang with the people of God? There are some people who are hanging in the midst of the people of God, but they're not holding fast to the God of the word. Is that the case? And yet, according to the Bible, it is the case. There are some who associate with Christ, and they benefit from Christ, and they enjoy the the common graces of Christ and being with the people of Christ, and yet they themselves are not possessors of Christ. Maybe at one time they made a decision. Maybe at one time they made a profession. Maybe at one point they've done ministry for Jesus, but yet at some point they reject it all and they turn away. Hebrews is saying, don't let that be you. Don't let that be you. What I hope to do this afternoon is I want to implore you with two urgent appeals. I want to give you two urgent appeals. And if I could take my verbal words and highlight it in yellow, I would. If I could take these urgent appeals and put it in all caps and bold and underline and italics, I would do it. If I could take the 12-point font and make it a 100-point font, I would do it. Because this is how urgent these two appeals are. Let's work through the text together and hear the urgent appeals. The first is this, let us mature. Let us mature. The second appeal that we will look at is this. Let us examine. As I told my children, I want to tell you this up front. If you are hearing the sermon rightly about halfway through, you're going to be scared. You're going to be scared. But I have four questions at the end that I think will be very helpful to help as we process all of this as we go through it. Okay? 
So the first urgent appeal is this, let us mature, let us mature. And it's found in verses one to three. What I'm going to mention in these opening three verses here is the solid foundation, the solid foundation. This is verse one, the therefore responding to the rebuke of last week. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teaching. The diagnosis of becoming dull is what he said last week. Therefore, in response to that, you you become a little bit spiritual lazy. You become sort of a a high-maintenance toddler Christian. You've allowed yourself to become spiritually dull in your life. Let's press on, the author says. Verse 1, let's press on to maturity. Do you see that word in verse 1, maturity? Let that just sink into your mind this evening. The word maturity in the Greek means completeness. It's like the pastor is saying to the church, let's grow up together. Let's mature to be complete Christians. Let's be well-rounded. Let's be growing. Let's be mature Christians. Let's be whole Christians. We don't want any part in our Christian armor to have a hole in it. We want to be a complete, a whole, a well-rounded Christian. Let's press on to maturity. Well, you can almost imagine the audience saying, well, okay, we need to press on to maturity. You just said last week that, that we have become spiritually dull and that we ought to be teachers, but we are now accustomed to milk. So how do we grow? How do we mature? How do we do that? Well, verse 1, look at it. He says, therefore, let us leave the elementary teaching about the Christ And let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. Now he says we are to lay aside, we are to leave the elementary teaching. He's not saying we abandon the elementary teaching. That's not the point at all. The point is we are to build upon it. Look, learning the ABCs is good, but you don't stay there forever. Going to kindergarten is important. But you don't stay in kindergarten forever. Learning the fundamentals of Christianity is important. But we don't just stay there forever. We build on it. We grow on it. It is a platform for further growth. And verse 1 and 2 is almost like the catechism of the early Jewish church. We have a catechism today, and we might say to the young kids, boys and girls, you hear this, right? In the catechism of the church, we we might say as parents to our children, boys and girls, you got to know who made you. You got to know the character of God. You got to know the offices of Christ. You got to know the gospel. You got to know justification. You got to know the Ten Commandments. You got to know the Lord's Prayer. That's in our catechism. That's the fundamentals of the faith. That's really important. Boys and girls, you got to know this. That's like what he's saying. We, we, we have the fundamentals. We have the catechism, verse 1, of the Christ, of the doctrine of our Savior. Let's press on. Let's build from that. Let's, let's continue to grow and continue to mature. Some of you might have a book on your shelf called The Fundamentals of the Faith. When I was in California, I taught a class called the Fundamentals of the Faith. That's good. That's essential. That's important. you got to know the fundamentals, but we don't stay there. We build on it. We continue to grow, and we deepen our theology and our understanding and our knowledge of Scripture. These are the basics of catechism. What are the fundamentals of the faith? He's going to list six of them. Look, look at the early Jewish church. Look what was in their catechism. So let's press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation. What's the foundation? Well, of repentance from dead works, right? Because as a Christian, we live by grace. We don't depend on our works. We're not saved by our dead works. We refuse, we abandon any confidence in our dead works to bring merit and status to God. We can't do that. We repent of that. We turn from confidence in our dead works to 
trust in God. Look at the end of verse 1. Not only repentance, but another key doctrine is faith toward God. A full confidence in God, a full confidence in Christ, a full confidence in his mercy. This is the catechism. What is he saying? We, we, we have this foundation of, of repentance from dead works and faith in our God. And then there's teachings. Look at verse 2. There's teachings, instructions about more topics, washings, washings. This isn't baptism. This is like the cleansing, the washing of of the Old Testament animals in the sacrificial system. And you and I might think, oh man, that's the book of Leviticus. I don't know if that's foundational to me. And I remember all of that. But it was to them. They taught all of that. It was meaningful. It was important. And it pointed them to the final lamb, the final sacrifice that would take away sin. We've taught you about, about washings. And then verse 2, the laying on of hands. Well, that happens all over the Old Testament. Laying hands on a, on a prophet or a priest or a king, a sign of identification. Even in the New Testament church, for a new convert, they laid hands on them. On church leaders, they would lay hands on them. For missionary work, they would lay hands on them, identifying people with gospel work. We, we, we've taught you that. That's foundational. That's the ABCs. And then he continues another one in verse 2. And we've taught you about the resurrection of the dead. We've taught you that all are going to rise, the just and the unjust, and we're all going to stand before God the judge. We've taught you that. End of verse 2. And we've taught you about the eternal judgment as well. There is a day of reckoning that awaits all unbelievers. Hallelujah. Jesus has spared us from that eternal judgment. What is the author doing? In verse 1, the main verbal action is let us press on to maturity. That's the idea. Let's mature. So can I ask this afternoon, how's your maturity? How's your growing? How's your maturing in the Christian faith? Are your studies progressing in Christ? We hear it from the Holy Spirit himself in verse 1. Let us press on to maturity. The catechism is great. It's essential. The kindergarten teaching is essential and important. The ABCs are important and essential. The fundamentals of the faith are important and essential. But we build on that with more theological training. Are you growing? Are you maturing? Are you growing in your knowledge of Christ and your knowledge of his word and your study of his word? That's what he wants. Verse three, look in your Bible at this. This is an amazing little verse. I'm so thankful the spirit put it here. And this we will do. Don't miss, what's the this? What do you mean this we will do? The this goes back to let us press on to maturity. We will mature what? If God permits it. What does that mean? If there is any ounce of growth in Jeff Kirkland, if there is any wit of growth in Jeff Kirkland or in you, it is all due to the sovereign grace of God. It's not me doing it. It's not you doing it. It's not my intellect or your intellect or our abilities. If there is any maturing, if there is any growth in Christ and immaturity, it is all due to the sovereign grace of God. The sovereign grace of God. So the first urgent appeal is let's mature. The second appeal that I must give you, it's what the author does now in verse 4. Not only must we mature, number two, if you're taking notes, write this down, let us examine. Now, if the maturing was the solid foundation, that's the catechism, it's the ABCs, we've got to build on it. Now we come to the examination. This is the scary condition. It's a very, very scary condition. I suppose I could sum up what I'm about to say in the next 10 minutes or so with this. If someone hears of Jesus, but then after a time they depart from Jesus, 
Having willfully rejected him, there is no hope. No hope. What we must do as we hear this is what Octor or the author or the preacher did in the early church. We need to hear this. We need to hear this. Church members, all 75 of you have been prayed for by name. Every child in this church, boys and girls, you've been prayed for by name. The greatest fear, I think, of any shepherd pastor is that there would be no apostates in our midst. In these verses, verse 4 and 5, look with me in your Bible. These are action phrases of experience. Look at verse 4. For, in the case of those who have once been enlightened. What does that mean? You've intellectually learned. You've been enlightened in the things of God through teaching of the Bible. And, verse 4, you have tasted of the heavenly gift. Wow, you've benefited from Christ and his blessings. And verse 4, you have become a partaker of the Holy Spirit, meaning you have responded to the power of God. You have gained benefit from the power of the Holy Spirit at work in the people of God. Wow, you've experienced some of that at work. And if we continue on in verse 5, you have tasted the good word of God. You you have benefited from the teaching and principles and and life things and, and, and marriage and parenting and honoring God and coming to worship. And you've tasted the good word of God and you've been blessed by that. In verse 5, and you've tasted of the powers of the age to come, these, these great works of God among his people. In the early church, it was the signs and wonders and miracles that God did through the apostles in and among his people. You've experienced that. You've seen that. You've been there. And I think the early church is probably like nodding their head. Yeah, I've been there. I've done this. I've experienced this. But maybe I could take this and just sort of put a pause for a minute and put this in modern terms. Imagine the pastor saying, you've, you, you've come to church for a long time. And you've heard the word of God. You've heard the gospel a lot. You hear the gospel read, you hear the gospel prayed, you hear the gospel preached, you hear the gospel sung, you hear the gospel discussed, and as you come week after week and year after year, you have learned a lot of doctrine. You've really been enlightened about Christian theology in your head. You've seen God at work in the midst of the church. I mean, God has saved people. And you've seen people be baptized. And you've seen people discipled. And they're growing. And they're maturing in Christ. You've seen God at work in the midst of the church. And you've benefited from many of the common grace experiences and blessings from God. You've experienced the the spirits working among us and the powerful preaching and the believing prayer and the heartfelt singing and the genuine love and the Christian unity and and the care for one another. Man, you, you enjoy that and you benefit from it. You've seen much. You've learned much. You've even found some help in the good word of God to help you in your life. You've seen God's messianic power on display in the preaching and in the godly living and in the church discipline and in lives transformed. You are in the midst of a working God in a transformed people. You're experiencing it. You're benefiting it. This is you. And people are nodding their heads saying, yeah, that's me. But then you come to verse 6. But then they fall away. Let me tell you about the Greek verb. The Greek verb is active. Meaning it's not passive. It doesn't happen to you. You willfully make the choice. It's not only active and willful. 
It's treacherous. This falling away is a treacherous decision. Not only is it active and willful and treacherous, it's also arrogant. This is someone who has been hanging around the people of God and they've made a lot of decisions to look like the people of God and maybe even done some Christian ministry alongside of the people of God. But then they arrogantly turn away from it all. It's active, it's willful, it's treacherous, it's arrogant, and it's also soul-destroying. I'm comforted by this word. It's not the Greek word for fall, if anyone falls, because sometimes the godly do fall. No, this is the Greek word falling away. There's a whole lot of difference between falling and falling away. This, verse 6, those who have fallen away are those who decisively, willfully abandon Jesus. They willfully repudiate Jesus. These are not ignorant people. These are defiant people. They're the worst of the worst. Let me be clear. This is not accidental. This is not somebody who is unaware. This is not somebody who is careless. It is a deliberate stepping into a black hole. I know all that stuff about Jesus. It's garbage. And they fall away and walk in a different direction. Verse 6, if they've got all those privileges, verse 6, but then they fall away. Look at verse 6. It is impossible. Notice that word impossible. Do you see that word impossible? Let me show you how important that, that is. The author actually puts it first in verse 4. But for the sake of our English, it makes sense to put it here in verse 6. It's emphatic. It is impossible to renew these people again to repentance since they again crucified themselves the Son of God and they would put him to open shame. So if someone's got all of these experiences and they look good and they're among the people of God and they've got this and they've got this and they've done here and they've done this and they've experienced this and all the blessings they, they just seem to enjoy and they like, but then they willfully, deliberately reject it all. God says it is impossible for that person to repent. For two reasons. Look at it at the end of verse 6. Since or because two things. They would again crucify to themselves the Son of God. It's like they have raised the flag. And the flag is this. I'm not crucified with Christ. I'm a crucifier of Christ. Or it's like the man who was at a protest holding a sign, if Jesus came back, we'd kill him all over again. They've taken their side. If Jesus came back again, these individuals described here in verse 6 who have fallen away would crucify Jesus all over again. And second, they would put him, verse 6, to open Shame. They would hold him in contempt. These are the ones who say that death of Jesus was good for nothing. That death of Jesus accomplished nothing. It achieved nothing. It benefited nothing. It was worthless. It accomplished no good. Jesus says, through the Spirit of God, in the written word of God, it's impossible for those people to ever repent again. What, what's, what's the alternative to this? 
I mean, we, we, we hear the, the danger of falling away. We hear the danger of apostatizing. We, we hear the danger of that. We know what 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 says, that in the last time some will fall away or apostatize from the faith. 1 Timothy 4, 1 warns us of that. So what do we do if we don't want to fall away, if we don't want to apostatize? What do we do? Here's the only alternative. And the only alternative is to persevere with Jesus by faith. It is to hold fast to Jesus by faith. It is to cling to Jesus by faith. It is to hold onto him with an obedient faith, with a loving faith, with a God-fearing faith, with a praising faith, with an adoring faith. Every day. Every day. Is that, is that seen in your life? Is that, is that demonstrated in your life? Now, Real quick footnote, if you're like me, we can read that and say, man, I've had some real bad days. This is not talking about a bad day. This is talking about a deliberate life decision. This is not somebody who's fallen into a sin. This is someone who is deliberately, willfully, knowingly falling away from Jesus in rejection. I want to be clear on the view that I am preaching this afternoon. I am not preaching the Arminian view that you can lose your salvation. A lot of commentators go to this passage to try to teach that you can lose your salvation. I'm not teaching that. More on that in a little bit. Second, I'm I'm not teaching what's often called the non-lordship view or the easy believism view. That you can just be saved by faith and then live any way you want. You know, if, if God has saved you and you're saved by grace, you can live on in sin. I'm not teaching that either. A much more common view, I am not teaching the hypothetical view. This is kind of a scare tactic on the part of the author. He's just kind of giving a hypothetical scenario, kind of a scare tactic, a a hypothetical teaching point that suppose there might be someone that might fall away. I'm not teaching that. What I'm teaching is the classic reformed view. This is a real warning. And what's so scary about this, it's a real warning given to the church. Remember, Hebrews is a sermon. The author is preaching this to a congregation. And it's a warning to those who externally might look like believers, but internally they're not real genuine believers, and they're tempted when times get tough to fall away from this Jesus thing and to get rid of this Jesus thing, and to go back to their old Jewish roots and abandon Jesus and abandon the Messiah and abandon this gospel, and they go back to their old roots. If that's the case, they would prove that they were unbelievers and never really had salvation to begin with. Before I draw this to some application questions. I want to give you a simple illustration that I think will be helpful. I think it it illustrates the, the tone and the seriousness of the passage. Imagine if you go on your computer tomorrow and you click on the headlines and you hear of a news story of a man who rose up and he killed a couple in their 80s. Cold blooded murder. I mean, you'd read the headline and you might gasp. You think, that's such a tragic, such an evil act for a man to rise up and kill a couple in their 80s. You click on that link and you begin reading a little bit of that news article and then you, you read and you find out that that man who killed the couple in their 80s was their own beloved son. They raised him They took him to church. They provided for him. They taught him biblical 
doctrine. They nurtured him, they disciplined him, they cared for him, they led him so long, they modeled Christ-likeness for him, but then at some point in his life, he rose up in a defiant rejection and murdered them. How terrible. How terrible that would be. I mean, look, we all, murder is murder. We understand that. Murder is murder. But when someone who received blessing upon blessing, when someone who received grace upon grace and love upon love and opportunity upon opportunity and kindness upon kindness, and then he rises up in willful spite and he hates and despises his own parents and he kills them, that's worse. That's what apostasy is. Receiving blessing upon blessing upon blessing and kindness from God, and then rising up, as it were, to kill him all over again. Boys and girls, let me have your attention for a quick sec before we go to some concluding questions. Boys and girls, if I could give you a word that your mom and dad, I'm sure, would tell you, and I will come alongside of them and say the same thing. Boys and girls, don't depart from Jesus. You have so many blessings and so many opportunities and so many kindnesses from God. You hear the word on Sunday, you hear the word on Wednesday, you hear the word all throughout the week as your dad and mom lead you, as we as a church support them and equip them and encourage them in what they're doing in the ministry. Of your own souls, boys and girls, don't turn away from Jesus. Don't turn away from Jesus. God is so kind to you. God is so good to you. Jesus is the only way to heaven. He is the only way for the weight of your sin to be lifted off of you. And for you to have the hope and the entrance into heaven, it only comes through Jesus. Boys and girls, trust in him and never let him go. Let us mature and let us examine. What I hope to do for the next few minutes together with you is give you some questions. Maybe you're here this afternoon and you're a little bit frightened like I was in all week in my sermon preparation. I don't want to be an apostate, and neither do you. And there, there might be questions in your mind. There might be some questions in your mind, and I hope to answer them by hopefully anticipating some of your questions. Number one, I have four, but let me give you the first. Can a true believer lose his salvation? The answer from the Bible from beginning to end is a clear no. A true believer must persevere to the end. Colossians chapter 1 tells us in verse 22 that God has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you holy and blameless and beyond reproach if you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you've heard. A true believer must persevere. Colossians 1 teaches that. But also a true believer will persevere. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that in verse 12. My beloved, as you've always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who is at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. Well, how do you know that you will persevere to the end? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5 says that true believers are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed 
in the last time. Let me give you some other scriptures as well. Ephesians 4.30, believers are sealed for the day of redemption. Romans 8.38 and 39, not even death can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ. Jude 24 and 25, God is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence. Philippians 1 verse 6, he who began a good work in you will perfect it. Psalm 121, God guards your soul. John 6 verse 40, he who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. So let me ask the question again. Can a true believer lose his salvation? Answer, no. A second question. This is where commentators often get hung up. This is where interpreters can often get hung up. The second question is this that might linger in your mind. Does this mean that an apostate can never repent again and be saved? Does our passage in Hebrews teach that an apostate can never repent and ever be saved? And the answer is yes. Our passage teaches that. That is correct. The Bible teaches that apostates are not able to repent. When God hands a person over, their condition is irreversible. Repentance and salvation is impossible for an apostate. And verse 6 clearly teaches that. After having fallen away, it is impossible for them to be renewed to repentance. Now, there are some commentators who try to wiggle their way around this, and they say, well, it's impossible for men, but it's not impossible for God. No, the text doesn't say that. There are some commentators who say, well, it's impossible as long as the apostate refuses to repent, but maybe he might want to be saved later on. No, the text doesn't say that either. Verse 6 clearly says that it is genuinely impossible for an apostate to ever come back. He has reached the point of no return. If I could say it as scary as I possibly could, God has the record of your life open, and there comes a point where he shuts the book, and he says, you're done. Enough is enough. The opportunity to repent is done. And the answer, and the example of this is Hebrews 12. Remember Hebrews chapter 12, when God, through the writer of Hebrews, gives us the example of Esau. In Hebrews 12, verse 16, the author says, See that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, meaning he was an apostate, because he found no place for repentance, even though he sought for it with tears. He didn't like the consequences, but he did not have genuine repentance. Esau was an apostate. And according to our text, which we'll get to in just a moment, the end of the apostates is the eternal fire, the second death, eternal hell. Third question. And this is the question maybe we're all asking in our minds. I hope you are. It's number three. How can I be sure that this isn't me? How can I be sure that I'm not an apostate? And I'm glad you asked. The answer is found at the end of our passage, Hebrews 6, verses 7 and 8. It's, it's a little parable. It's a little illustration. It's a little story that the author gives. Verse 7, for the ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it. So think of, think of the common grace, the blessings of God, the reading and preaching of the word like rain that falls on a field. 
The ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it, verse 7, it brings forth vegetation, it brings forth fruit, it's useful to those for whose sake it is tilled, it receives a blessing from God. So you meet, you hear the rain of the word, you benefit from the rain of the word, you, you're nourished, you're bearing fruit, vegetation is sprouting and growing, it's beneficial, you get a blessing from God. Look at verse 8. There's another kind of field. The other field also drinks the rain that falls on it, but it yields thorns and thistles, meaning it doesn't bear fruit. It's just weedy, just thorns and thistles and weeds. Oh, it it gets the benefit of the rain, but it doesn't bear fruit. End of verse 8, notice the three verbals. It's close to being cursed. Oh, no, no, it's worthless. It's close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. The question is this. We're all here together, and we're benefiting from the reign of the word, the the reign of God's working among us. We benefit from it. We see it. We enjoy it. This is why togetherness and church membership and accountability and active reproving of one another when we sin and, and humility and church discipline and hearing God's word like rain is so vital for the people of God. but we want to bear fruit. We, we don't want to receive it and then just be a weedy garden. We don't want to have thorns and thistles. We want to have fruit and vegetation. You know what I think is really helpful about this passage? We're never told to identify people. Oh, he's an apostate. She's an apostate. Because we don't know. So what if somebody turns away from Christ? What do we do? We call them to repent. We call them to repent. We're not commanded in the text here, go figure out who the apostates are and wipe your hands and wash your hands. The the Bible never says that. It says we are to preach and plead and warn and urge and woo them. John 15, abide in me and I will abide in you and you'll bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. How do we know? How do we know that this is not us? Church family, this is where church membership and church accountability and church growth and fruit bearing and reliance on the means of grace so that God grows us as we put ourselves under the working of God in these means that God has given. Bible reading, church attendance, the ordinances of baptism, communion, and and, and the prayer and all the fellowship. This is what we need to bear fruit. Fourth and finally, why? Why such a scary warning? Why? It's amazing to read the commentators that try to explain away the warnings. (laughs) Why the warning? It's a means of grace for the elect so that we will hear God's loving voice and take action. I think sadly and tragically, it's also a means of hardening the non-elect. I think it's a means of hardening the non-elect so that they're apathetic. I'll leave it at that. Much more could be said. So what do we do? What do we do as we draw this to a close? We've read Hebrews 6. We've learned the warning of apostasy. Those who who have hung around the people of God, but then they make a choice to willfully reject it all. It is impossible for them to repent. What do we do? Your Bible is open to Hebrews. Real quick, go back to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, follow with me in verse 6. What do we do? This is the application verse for us, for all of us. Hebrews 3, 6, 
Christ is faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. What do we do? We hold fast to Jesus. Look at verse 14 of chapter 3. Verse 14, we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. What do we do? We hold fast to Jesus. Turn to chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast. Let's hold fast our confession. And then later, toward the end of Hebrews, chapter 10 and verse 23. Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The author loves the people of God. The Spirit of God loves us, the people of God, so much that he warns us. He warns us to caution us, to alarm us as those who benefit from the reign of the word. We benefit from the reign of God's working among us. We all benefit. We enjoy it. We like it. And what is God saying? Don't. Don't fall away. Hold fast. Hold on tight. Believe in Jesus. Cling to him. I want to give you a couple of one-liner application points that I think need to be said. I have more here in my notes, but I'll just mention them for time. Christian, hear this. It is dangerous to hear the word, but not obey the word. Number two. It is dangerous to profess Christ, but not produce fruit for Christ. Number three, it is very dangerous to lack ongoing repentance. We believed and we were justified and we must keep on believing. We repented and believed In response to the gospel, we were saved. We must keep on repenting and believing in our lives. It is dangerous to lack it. Number four, hear this. It is dangerous to be unconcerned about this text and treat it lightly. But on the other hand, number five, it is also dangerous to worry excessively about this text if you're trusting in Christ and you want to glorify him. So I want to close, and I want to close with a great word of hope. Turn to the book of Jude. Turn to the book of Jude very, very quickly, and then we'll go to dinner, and I'm sure we can talk much more about this together over a meal. In Jude, Jude is writing to early believers. Jude is the brother of our Lord writing this little letter, and he's warning them of apostates, verse Verse 4, certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. They are ungodly persons. They turn the grace of our God into licentiousness, and they deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. They know about God. They know about Him. They were once among the people of God. They were in the love festivals of, of fellowship and food and baptisms and all the things of worship, and yet they have denied the Master. What do we do? What do we do so that we are on guard? Skip down toward the end of the book of Jude to verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith. That's what we want to do. We want to build ourselves up. And then verse 20, we are to be praying in the Holy Spirit. That's not a charismatic Pentecostal thing. That's contrast to verse 19. The the apostates don't have the Spirit. True believers, verse 20, do have the Spirit. We are praying in the Spirit. 
Verse 21, we are to keep ourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord. This is important. We are to be growing. We are to be looking for the second coming. We are to remember the love of God. We are to be people of prayer. We want to do that. But you know what? You can't do it on your own. And look at how the book ends in verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. Now to him, it's not you. You don't do it. God does. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Christian, keep yourself in the love of God. But as you keep yourself in the love of God, just remember it is God. It is God himself who is keeping you from stumbling. And he is the one who has promised to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless and with great joy. To him be the glory before all time and now and forever. Let's pray.